see everything the movie podcast where we review rank and riff on every single film in the criterion collection i'm anthony and this is sean who has something to say i think dildos should come with nuts not all of them necessarily but i think a lot of them should because i'm just thinking about like okay if i want to get fucked by a big horse stick right a big part of that experience to me is having the nut slap against my ass while it's fucking me and just with horse dildos as they are right now without the nuts a lot of that experience is is completely missed and i understand it would be difficult you know manufacturing wise to really get the sort of tensile feel the texture the the pendulous nature of it but i just think that that's something that people should look into because it's a big part of the effect that i personally am missing you have revealed your naivete to not realize that many definitely do uh have that uh aspect to them i'm just hold on i'm gonna look that <laughs> on this week's episode we are covering uh four movies that are we're, we're going back to school sean bam back to school special you know we all uh, need to saxophone learn a music bit more about the world vhs looking it's the real world or whatever it's i don't know what uh, school ties we're uh freaks and geeks we're going back to school we're going crazy and um So we're doing, so we have uh, four movies about sort of alienation and not being able to figure out your place in the world uh, during a very difficult time in your life. For the third man, that is uh, between jobs as a writer, when you're kind of like poor, but like middlingly famous. And then we have uh, three movies where it's, yeah, yeah. We're at least middlingly famous. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. We're, We're like Mike Tyson level famous. That's I think that that that's we could all settle on that, right? That's fair to say, yeah. Um, and then we have three movies that are about uh, that special time when you know the birds, the bees—they all come together and uh, they, you know, make you into a beautiful flower or whatever the metaphor is. We're talking about teenagerdom, being in school, ah, school, and uh, so we've got Wes Anderson's Rushmore. We've got John Hughes, The Breakfast Club, and we've got Alexander Payne's uh, election. And Alexander Payne, the wrestler, will be joining us today uh, in in a few moments. Sean, what did you think of this week's episode? Well, this, this week's movies. Not a bad one in the bunch. This might be my favorite week in quite a while. In Since the Oops All Bangers one, for sure. Yeah, there's like five or so episodes I think that we could have done that would be in contention here. But I have an old favorite that I am learning new things about how much I appreciate. I have a new, maybe not quite favorite, but still fucking good. And then two other heaters. This is is a good one. You, you described my experience as well, except that we swapped which one's our favorite and which one is. We like it, but, it, you know, it's just kind of good or whatever. Yeah, that's fine. All right, let's let's dive right into this with the third man. Uh, Sean, I enjoy the third man so much, but, uh, you know, Rushmore is really more my thing. So will you do me a favor uh, and read the description for me this time around? Because I'm we're, we're swapping here. I got to I got to talk more about Rushmore because I'm the Wes Anderson boy, you know. 
I'm perfectly centered in frame. That sounds fair to me. Yeah, you are right now. And there's like this big piss filter all over <laughs> and all the posters are arranged perfectly symmetrically. Oh, that's, you know, now we're getting into AI generated stuff. Kinda, yeah. I am generated by AI. AI. Man, yeah, that is true. I think that's what we said about me last time, but that's okay. Carol reads the third man. Pulp novelist Holly Martins travels to shadowy post-war Vienna, only to find himself investigating the mysterious death of an old friend, black market opportunist Harry Lime, and thus begins this legendary tale of love, deception, and murder. Thanks to brilliant performances by Joseph Cotton, Alida Valle, and Orson Welles, Anton Karras's evocative zither score, Graham Greene's razor-sharp dialogue, and Robert Krasker's dramatic use of light and shadow, The Third Man, directed by the inimitable Carol Reed, only grows in stature as the years pass. So, a lot of stuff from this kind of era, late 40s to early 60s film noir classics, these are things that I'm not... It's not exactly my thing. And on some level, I feel like kind of guilty about it because kind of my film credibility is sort of tied up in that. But I just did sure. haven't I haven't really connected with these so far in my life. But this fucking thing, script, acting, like, not score. I was about to say score. Uh, I have some issues with the score. No, the score is good. The score is good. The score is good, but you have that goofy song. Like, and I know it's like, I don't, Santa Fe. It's like Texan, you know? It's like a joke. Oh, yeah. I don't like it. I guess it's kind of a joke, but I don't, you know. It's I actually didn't smooth. know that it was that it was that. So you know what? That makes me like it a little bit better. But this <laughs> the the broad point that I'm getting to here is this thing is basically fucking perfect. And I kind of love it. And it might be one of my new favorites. Yeah, you know, uh, I will say uh, I did not have as strong a reaction to it as you did. I really enjoyed it. I think that uh, the performances are amazing. I think that the last, like, let's, we'll have to structure this kind of around um, uh, sort of the timing of the whole movie or whatever. I think that, because I think that the last bit of this movie, which, spoilers, is when, like, Orson Welles shows up. From then on, the movie is really cooking with gas. Every scene feels like it's multifaceted and beautiful and perfectly choreographed and all that. But uh, before that, there's not a lot uh, going here. I feel the mystery kind of gets a little bland and stops in a few places. I think that there's moments where, for example, the porter is like, wait, why don't you come back to later? I'll tell you more about the story. And I'm like, we already did that scene. And I know that now he's going to come back. He's going to be dead. But like the it feels too convenient it feels too drawn out like they're just pulling our characters from one place to another where the guys are like i don't know there was a third man who knows right and i don't feel like there's a lot of uh thrust to that because i know that something amazing something crazy has to happen for him to actually solve the plot and uh, i'm just kind of waiting for that to happen and when it does it does it hits hard and it explodes but uh you know, it takes a second to get there. I had a completely different experience than you did with the first half of this. Mm. I won't I won't tell you that once Orson Welles shows up, it doesn't get better. Because I basically agree with that. But basically from go, this thing is just fucking fascinating. And a big part of that for me is Holly Martin's just works so well as a character. Because he has this this great sense of 
dejection and being unsatisfied and feeling like this this guy who's sort of ashamed of his own work and is this weird transitory period in his life where he just he's he's kind of alone and washed up uh in this and he's a type of character that feels like it kind of captures that same sort of noir detective down and out down in his luck but from a different access where he's not a professional investigator he doesn't have any connections he doesn't know the city he's he's a noir detective with the motivation to go through with the case but none of the skills or capabilities that you would want in order to do that which has this he's kind of bad at it yeah 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 he's got this unique feeling of helplessness to him and being completely unmoored and ungrounded um, in this strange environment with the only person he knows being dead. And that it's such a fucking good start to have immediately like, yeah, the, the cat we're introduced to this character. who's kind of a piece of shit, kind of down and out, kind of down in his luck, relatable in his way, but yeah, he's alone in the city. He doesn't know anybody. He has no job, but what I really love about it is the fact that he is willing to, in spite of all that, motivate him motivate himself entirely by trying to find Harry's killer is just, it imparts so much immediately about their relationship as characters. And that is kind of the fulcrum point for the whole thing is what Holly feels like he owes to Harry and everything that he resents him for and is jealous about him for. Um, and also how little he has going for himself in his life yes. outside of this, you know? Yeah, like everything is kind of in Harry's wake, like following after him. Like even the, the woman that he falls in love with is not only Harry's lady, but she is still currently in love with him. And it that's... And calls him Harry. Right, yeah. Like, everything that is good about him is kind of just shadows of of who his friend is. Uh, but sure. besides that, I'll, I'll just briefly comment on this, and then, of course, please carry on. But the style of this thing is incredible, and always, and consistently. In its absolute highlights, like some of the most famous and best segments, like those are obvious, but just in every single scene, there's this effort to make every shot interesting, to have things displayed at a very slight angle to to impart this feeling of being kind of on edge or this tension. There's this constant sense that the camera is reactive to the character's emotions in a way that a lot of films from this time, I think, don't have as good a sense of and it it consistently kept me interested in the action at every single point even when the story was still in the process of ramping up you're selling me on this a lot because i really but you know i uh, this is a really well-made movie i cannot deny that especially for its time in a time when these noir movies could be you know seen at every corner store five and dime Place at the Seven Eleven, you could pick up the big sleep for for two cents a pop. That might oh no no, no. they back in the they day would be like showing it at the Seven Eleven. <laughs> oh, I see. So they, it makes they, even less sense. You'd like get a big gulp and like look in your cup, and there'd be like you know bogey looking back at you or whatever. Oh my um, god, that sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, or it's a bogey. 
And so uh, in some cases, it's both because his movies suck. No, I think that generally I I agree with you. I think that there, uh, I I think that this movie constantly goes above and beyond, but also, you know, it, it drags a little, the first half of this movie to me, um, or even, I don't know, two thirds of this movie to me really feel like they're spinning their wheels in a cheap pulpy detective novel kind of way i don't he's not going to uncover anything i know he's not going to uncover anything he doesn't seem like the kind of character who will uncover anything i went in knowing that orson wells was a part of it i didn't know that he wasn't going to be revealed until that moment but i still felt the anticipation of like okay there's going to be a reveal there's going to be someone is going to tell him the thing that's going to unlock the mystery for him. And then we're going to be off and there'll be like something interesting will happen. But most of the movie is just him walking around kind of aimlessly asking guys like, hey, what happened? And they're like, I'm going to tell you some of the story, but not all of the story. Dun, dun, dun. And he's like, oh, great. Ah, no leads. Anyway, I'm going to like go. And I didn't find him that compelling. He is a little complex. I do agree. But uh I don't know. His, his relationship with uh, Harry Lyme is never explained. And when you're put again, uh, is never uh, really fleshed out explicitly in a way that made me think, oh, we should really be rooting for this guy. We should be rooting for Harry Lyme or in some way uh, feel indebted to him the same way that uh, our main character does. And that's a feature to a certain extent because you don't want to, the, the absence of Harry Lyme makes it so powerful when he does show up. But the fact that he's like spending all this time being like, Oh, I, I don't believe Harry would do that and all that stuff. I I don't find that really compelling because we don't have any relationship to, with him to, to say he wouldn't. I, I especially in this, especially in this society that they're constantly showcasing of like this city. It's like, you know, it's like most European cities, half bombs, you know, like in this, like everything's kind of going a little haywire kind of city. I'm like, I, I 100% believe that Harry Lyme did everything that the cop is accusing him of the entire time. I don't ever like, I, I like the idea of the twist sort of being, no, he actually did do the thing that the cops who are kind of annoying, you actually should believe them. But I believe him from the very moment that they say like, yeah, Harry Lyme's a bad person or whatever. But isn't, aren't so many of the character relationships that holly has with pretty much every character on some level elucidating his relationship with harry because when he's with the dancer with harry's with harry's lady there's all these brief little men like holly can't go a couple sentences without mentioning yeah you know harry had this way about him he used to do this this and this he always used to you know make you feel like you had fun and then she add some other context of like you know harry always liked to to leave me alone for a while harry didn't seem like he was very interested in me or when he's talking to the police and they're you know explaining to him all the things that harry has done like no he was this black market smuggler or harry's other friends like the guy who's in the guys who are in on the conspiracy with him they give him you know these other slivers and us you know as as a result, other slivers of insight into who Harry is. I think that the, right. the whole but it's thing constantly... is built off of these relationships and the things that Holly can't help but reveal about his own relationship with Harry, and it becomes, in my mind, like immediately very complex and interesting. And I think that that's the the project of the film is constantly in exploring that. The the constant tension of the movie's first half, especially 
is revealing these things about Harry that this guy doesn't believe and doesn't know about. He's constant. We're being taught about Harry through, you know, completely fresh eyes. We don't know Harry Lyme. We've never heard of Harry Lyme. It's not like he's like, it would be interesting if they used like, well, Al Capone would never do something like that. Like, you know, whatever. If they actually use a real historical figure, but they didn't. And Harry Lyme is instead someone who this guy claims to know and everyone else is giving us more specific details. And so I believe them. And so I don't buy into the tension as much, I guess. I I, I see what you're saying here. I, I do think it's visually interesting for the most part. I think that the characters, you know, are, do all, all right. And I think that the performances are very well done and that is what lends them a lot of their power. But when Harry finally shows up in the greatest introduction scene like for a character yes. since i don't know like uh citizen kane right w- willy wonka right like great uh, the joker in the dark knight like rear like, window rear window rear window good one um like these like we're introducing a character who is uh, indiana jones right who is awe-inspiring right and so you have all these moments that uh put them that you put them all together and you uh it with with great filmmaking by starting with like the feet and showing like the cat coming up to him and all that stuff it's so mythic and it's so great i love it immediately um and suddenly i'm like okay finally the movie is kicked into what the movie should have been the whole time now i'm not saying that harry shouldn't have shown up at by then i'm saying that i don't buy into the tension between who he thinks harry is and who harry actually is because most of what he's saying about who he thinks harry is is just not what the other people are saying i i don't agree though because he's he's mostly talking about the personal qualities of harry that i mean and we see it um, in his interactions, especially on the Ferris wheel, where Harry is very charming. He is somebody who makes sense with um, with Holly's description of him as like the suave, charming guy who can always make you feel like a friend and can always sort of, he's, he's kind of I captivating. Mean, you see why somebody would fall in love with him, but right when he shows up, you all, you immediately are like those two people slept together like they have that like chemistry even in just like looking over at each other in a moment and saying like you gotta run harry or whatever i'm like yep those two people slept together they have like that kind of charisma yeah but pretty quickly it's revealed that harry is capable of all of these things but the way that he even describes it is convincing in its own way to where i don't think that there's any real contradiction between how the harry that holly describes and the harry that other people describe it's part of the the tragedy of this thing is holly recognizing that he didn't know harry the way that he thought he did and that nobody knows harry the way they thought he did i don't think that we need to completely trust sure. other people's description of harry because remember i i forget her name but harry's lover she says Harry wouldn't be so stupid as to show his face and meet you at the cafe, which she's completely wrong about. And Mm -hmm. she would know him about as well as anybody. So I I think a common theme is that no one really fully knows Harry. Um, And that... I I agree. I think that what... I I agree. I think that my main problem is propulsion and pacing. And I I think we should abandon that because I think we should talk about the last bit of this movie where it rocks and becomes like 
transcendently perfect and like this is the part of the movie this is everything i wanted out of any of these movies is this last act where first harry you know introduces himself and they have that great chase through the streets with like these lights that cast amazing shadows along the wall that are huge and larger than life and then he you know he goes down a secret passage and he's downstairs and he brings the cop and he's like well there is a secret passage, but maybe you didn't see a dead man. Let's dig up the great, like all that stuff is so compelling. The meeting at the Ferris wheel is terrifying. I, I'm not afraid of heights personally, but when Orson Welles says I could throw you off of this Ferris wheel, I go, I actually honestly was like, is this character going to die in this scene? Are we going to have a passing of the torch from like one character to another as to who the main character is or whatever? I honestly had that like thought. And I I think that uh, Orson Welles is just such a compelling performance. I think that these characters all were meant to merge together. I, I, it's just the mystery that leads up to it that, that I have a problem with, but then it comes, it all comes down to the sewer chase and the sewer chase is like a great action scene you know it's a great moment of like uh it's tension it reminded me of the mission impossible movies partially because the mission impossible movies can go and go in the sewers a couple times you think about mission impossible fallout or whatever uh but they are uh, but just because there's this this uh ethereal story storybook quality to them it's like you know the shadows on the wall scare him the voices down the hall like Mm -hmm. you know it's like telling ghost stories and it rules and you're suddenly in orson welles's shoes uh and i I think that they're as perfect as any noir movie any any movie that we've covered so far that has an action sequence this is i mean this is the one to beat fellas absolutely and the way that it culminates with harry in this just tucked away in this pathetic little corner hole with Holly staring yes. him down. And then of course, one of the most perfect shots, like fucking breathtaking him walking in the tunnel, just silhouetted. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's everything. It's so perfect. It's like this incredible, emotional, cathartic and tragic moment. Finally, like the, it's it's a real that's part of what I, what I like about this thing is just it visually represents the tragedy of of this thing which is this awful irredeemable terrible man but holly has been so thoroughly manipulated by him that he still feels in a sense like he owes something to him or there's there's this sense of guilt for destroying this person who no one should feel guilty about destroying um but there's there's still like this real melancholy but also nobility and swagger to it like he looks like a cowboy kind of riding out of the sunset like kind of the reverse of that image where it's it's undermining all the glory and all the beauty of that image by recontextualizing it in a very in a very tragic way because he he doesn't see himself as the protagonist or the hero of of one of his novels he's sort of seeing that in in an opposite mirrored warped way where he knows that what he's done is heroic but unlike at the end of a pulp novel he doesn't feel good about it right right i yeah i think it i i I agree i i like that he does take the shot i like that there's not i i think it's pretty obvious he does kill him 
you know, even oh, though they yeah. cut away before he, he, he takes the shot. I was, as soon as they cut away and there was the ringing of the shot, I was like, oh, they're going to do something where they're like, and actually Harry Lime is still around to this day. He couldn't take the shot or whatever. And I was like, no, he does definitively do that. But then he has nowhere else to go. Now he's just destitute. And it culminates. The whole movie boils down to, look, running down the tunnel, famous shot, amazing shot, great shot. Best shot in the movie. Other than maybe in Harry's introduction, is the final moment where he's sitting there waiting for her to walk past him in this just breathtaking autumnal environment. Um, it is it's gorgeous and it is uh, sad and it uh, breaks my heart where it's like there, there's this absence of anything going for him. He did the, quote, right thing, and yet there's nothing for him. I think that really ties into this whole movie thematically, because this is a movie about sort of what we do in desperation during times of war and how we act and and uh, fulfillment that we get. Harry Lime seems like a pretty... I mean, the most horrible thing about him is that he seems like he's a pretty fulfilled dude. <laughs> like, he doesn't yeah, seem... Happy. He seems pretty... Yeah, he's got a, you know, cherubic face, as everyone always says about Orson Welles. He's very smiley he's very whimsical he's like puck or something and he enjoys himself completely thoroughly and he doesn't feel bad about his crimes because he's like i don't know i seem pretty chill there's not there's not a hint of conflict within him except like i gotta run away from these guys who are chasing me or whatever and uh to contrast that with our with our protagonist it's it's awful it's terrifying uh i also want to mention quick very quickly the other cop not the inspector the other cop, his name is Payne. And, uh, you know, we're talking about Alexander Payne today. Mm-hmm. So I just, you know, it's the same guy, you know? It's the same exact guy. It's an Easter egg. Right, right. That's it's, 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 it's really it's good trivia is that it's the same guy. <laughs> Put that on IMDb. It's the same guy. That's it's the, the full note. Yep, just no, nothing attached. No explanation. <laughs> it's the same guy. All right. Uh, I think we're ready to move on, Sean. Yeah. Let's... Let's go back to school. Uh oh, is that the school bell I just heard ring? Boom, 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 boom. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm fucking late to class and the teacher's going to kick the shit out of me. I got to shove this toast to my mouth and run to my bicycle. Like oh no, uh, Jock Sean's coming this way. I better stuff myself in a locker. Which way know. did he go? Which way did he go? <laughs> I'll never find me in here. I don't know where we're going with this. Let's end it. Uh, the end. We're going to talk about Rushmore, starting with you reading the Criterion description. The dazzling sophomore film from Wes Anderson is equal parts coming-of-age story, French New Wave homage, and screwball comedy. Tenth grader Max Fisher, Jason Schwartzman, is Rushmore Academy's most extracurricular student, and it's least scholarly. He faces expulsion and enters into unlikely friendships with both a lovely first-grade teacher, Olivia Williams, and a melancholy self-made millionaire, Bill Murray, in an award-winning performance. Set to its soundtrack of classic British invasion tunes, Rushmore defies categorization, capturing the pain and exuberance of adolescence with wit, emotional depth, and cinematic panache. So you're a Wes Anderson guy. I know yeah. you're a fan. I didn't realize how little of one I was, because I've only seen two. This and Fantastic Mr. Fox. I'd sure. seen it before. I'd seen it a while ago. Definitely didn't remember it as well as I thought I did. But uh, 
what I'm going to let you kind of take the lead here. Tell me a little bit about how you think this fits into Mr. Anderson's oeuvre. This is a great, this is, I mean, a perfect introduction to Wes Anderson because Bottle Rocket is his first movie, but this is his second movie uh, is really the movie where he's like, all right, you're either in or you're out on my style. Bottle Rocket has a lot of Wes Andersonisms. If you had never heard of Wes Anderson and you watched Bottle Rocket, you would still be like, well, that was very distinctively shot, I suppose. But Rushmore is the first movie where it comes together and really makes a a sort of collage of everything. It's the first movie where, um, it, I mean, it, he's like they mentioned the British rock tunes. They they really start. He starts to make movies more about rich people who are sad about their lives a little bit, as opposed to uh, Bottle Rocket, which is about like uh, not rich people, lower class people who are sad about their lives uh and he and he starts using his like perfectionist lens to look at the world rushmore is also the movie that really makes him take off martin scorsese after seeing rushmore claimed that he was going to be that that wes anderson was going to be the next martin scorsese and i think you can really see it here i think that there's a, a powerful uh, perspective on the entire world that he really presents here and he lays out a little bit more thoroughly uh he's got all his usual obsessions uh uh he he, he talks about um i mean the, the uh, max flesher flesher's uh, obsession with uh extracurricular activities obviously gives him uh a lot of lead to be able to do his normal montage stuff uh the color palette of course is i mean a toned down version of the west anderson we know today but still uh, very effective and very much uh his style uh the Cocteau references, of course, are uh, something that he will return to again and again, most obviously in Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, which is a Cocteau biopic without being a Cocteau biopic because they can't use his name. And uh, he and he becomes this guy who uh, he, he really becomes the guy that we know and love today in Rushmore. Uh, I think it's also worth noting, you know, the description uh, talks about Bill Murray's per- award-nominated performance. This is also Bill Murray's beginning of being like the modern post two thousands Bill Murray, which is like sad sack in a bunch of indie movies, kind of self aware a little bit, able to turn his uh, biting humor into sadness. Um, the fact that he's not like, supposed to be a cool guy anymore. No, yes, and he's not. He doesn't have a remove anymore. You know the the. The funniest joke with Bill Murray in this movie, debatably, of course, is that he is when he like plays basketball with some kids, like he like interrupts their basketball game while he's on a phone call. Mm-hmm. And I like that they weaponize that as saying, like, isn't this guy like pathetic, even though that's a very like Bill Murray ish joke. It's also like it's also incredibly sad and i think that rushmore is the first movie to really do that so that you know later obviously wes anderson will keep on using him again and again we talked about steve zuso uh we'll talk about that down the line but also uh you know lost in translation comes out of this even the zombie land cameo i think really comes out of sort of uh wes anderson entering this new sad weird phase of his co- career where the worst movie he can make is like aloha and even that he's like I'm a sad sack of potatoes instead of being like, I'm Bill Murray. Nice to meet you. Have you ever heard of Ghostbusters? That's, that's my impression of Bill Murray. That's a really good one. I like that one. Yeah. And his character is, I think that it's fair to say that Max is kind of the anchor of this thing. 
but he, he's sort of like the reverse anchor, I guess, it, in the sense that, so talking about Wes Anderson here, as somebody who is familiar enough with his style, just from like the trailers of his movies osmosis. and it being described. Yeah, osmosis, mm-hmm. definitely. Like this, this doesn't feel like a fully Wes Anderson, like the Wes Anderson infection hasn't spread to the core yet. It's like still kind of, it's still on the surface because Max is sort of the only explicitly fantastical or whimsical character in the universe of the movie. Obviously the presentation and the tone is still very Wes Anderson. It feels like one of his films, but as far as like the wackiness of, of the characters and feeling like, yeah, this is a Wes Anderson character. Max is really the only one there. Everyone else seems pretty grounded with the exception maybe of Dirk, but he's kind of Max's apprentice anyway. So that makes enough sense. And Magnus to an extent, he's like a little bit of a goofy bully, but not so much that he he kind of escapes the bounds of reality like Max does. But then to have, um, what's Bill Murray's character's name? Mr. L something? I actually do not remember. I don't know. Whatever. Bill Murray. Like, to have him... It, it makes sense why he's sort of magnetically attracted to Max, and also why Rosemary is also sort of willing to give Max a lot more credit and time, is that he is kind of magnetic. He is, like, the exception to the to the rule in this case. And I think that that's part of what makes it work for people who might not might be a little bit over the whole Wes Anderson thing, or maybe they think that style's exhausting. I don't know if that's me yet. It might be um, going down the line. I don't think so, but you know, it's possible. But this Max is, he's kind of an obnoxious and overbearing character in a way that the movie, you know, appropriately treats him as such. But mm-hmm. he he exists enough as a counterpoint to everything else um, that it never gets exhausting, and I think is a big part of of selling him. And Schwartzman also gives a very good performance. He's great selling him as as a little man, as a miniature guy, as a fifteen year old, the the final form of the roller backpack kid. Like that's it's it's fun. It's a fun character, and the balance I think between fantasy and and a, a lot more grounded dynamics of the other characters makes it work very well. This is the last Wes Anderson movie that is a. A dual protagonist or you know maybe tritagonist whatever you want to say like it, it's two to three main characters from now on every single wes anderson movie will be an ensemble mm-hmm. even fantastic mr fox is actually like about well his kid and the cousin and the you know the other people around him and it, it's trying to show that's the one movie that's like named after a character but all of his movies, Grand Budapest Hotel, it's like, okay, great. There's there's these two uh, people in the middle of this thing, but there's also this, like, uh, you know, painting thing going on, and that assembles a huge slew of uh, Wes Anderson character actors who are going to be in all of his movies or whatever. Moonrise Kingdom, it's sure, it's about these two people getting together, but it we follow multiple times, like the people who are pursuing them and all this stuff. I think that uh, from now on, he's basically going to stop focusing on one singular character and he's going to make movies that are about larger ensembles. And so I wonder then if what ends up happening, especially in Royal Tenenbaums, which is his next movie. And in my opinion, his masterpiece, he starts being, he starts spreading around the whsimsy. He starts making every character have like a little thing. 
Pearl Tenenbaums, it's like, oh, Gwyneth Paltrow wears a coat all the time. That's the thing that she does. And she's really sad and stuff goes on. And then, you know, you got your life aquatics. It's like, oh, you know, all, everyone's going to wear these uniforms and wear like a red hat. And they're all going to be sad all the time. And this one plays the guitar. But, you know, he's probably sad, too. And Willem Dafoe is going to, you know, he's going to chill. He's going to be really intense and like look into the camera really deeply or whatever. These these all the quirks start invading all of his characters and i wonder if rushmore and to a certain extent bottle rocket which is uh, has you know these two uh, brothers or whatever literally the wilsons right uh playing these characters who one of them's clearly the straight man and the other one is like the wacky one right i wonder if wes's style I, I want to know what you'll think about these other other movies going forward, because I wonder if Wes started by being like, what if I just concentrate my style into one character and then and made all the wackiness, all the silly decisions come out of them. And then everyone else will be kind of a normal person and they won't be quirky or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that also makes uh, I think that makes sense for this movie. But, you know, as we go forward, you'll, you'll have to either get used to or hate more quirky characters going forward yeah i i think that i wouldn't say that this is a flaw exactly well it's something that that kind of undercut my enjoyment of it is it okay you think if we start talking about the the way that this thing ends or you want to talk a little bit more about the the meat no, let's bring this home because I, I think, you know, we've talked about the meat of this thing a, a bit. I, you know, it's a story about this kid or whatever and fighting over this woman uh, with an, a grown adult. But what's so interesting about it is that uh, it ends in a way that I don't think either of us liked, but I think it affected you a little more. Yeah. So the the, the way that I remember this movie is I was watching it for the first time and they get to the scene where Dirk and Max are flying on the tarmac and they're flying the kite and Margaret comes by, they have their little exchange and then Max starts talking about, you know, I want to start up an aviation club and he starts talking to Dirk and he's dictating names and the camera's panning out and the music's drowning out his voice and you're like, oh, that's a nice little ending. It's it's not cleanly tying up everything with a bow, but there's still some optimism there. He's Max is kind of at rock bottom, but he's sort of on the upswing and he's he's going to take these lessons he's learned to become more mature as he advances himself in general. That's a, a mature but still cute and 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 fun ending. But you, then it you keeps hate, going. Right, you hate happy endings. You hate endings with a bow. No, no, because it would still be a happy ending. But I don't love an ending that's a little bit too clean in a lot of movies. Some anything can work for any movie as long as it's properly set up, but I like having something that's a little bit more ambiguous and the way that they do it with the wrapping up everything and tying it up in a neat little bow and everybody gets literally every character ending. shows yeah, up at every the end for his play. Yeah. That's what makes it feel like a Wes Andersonism that, isn't entirely earned like we see this whole panning shot of everybody coming together and it's it's a little bit fantastical it's a little bit goofy you know and the way that it wraps up is sort of with this sort of fairy tale ending everybody gets together everybody you know gets gets their own romantic thing and it's i don't like it as much as yeah leaving a little bit of that ambiguity because on the tarmac it's just such a perfect ending that i think making it a little bit 
cornier, I guess. It it feels like it's sort of dumbing it down. Um, and it's not that I, I hated it, because I do like these characters, and I don't mind seeing them get their happy endings, but it didn't feel, in my mind, totally earned. It was a little did, bit distracting. Did you find it funny? Like the end, like the ending scenes, you know, they've got the Vietnam War. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, that whole scene. Everything. The, I mean, it was funny. It was legitimately very impressive because I don't think this movie mm. had a huge budget, but getting everything together on the stage. I mean, I, I guess that that would be, it is like Max's thing, but it, sure. that, that whole segment definitely felt a lot more fantastical and less detached because getting dynamite you know working on this incredibly stall stage this insanely intricate detailed scene like with this implication that there was way more that we didn't even see and right man it i i also want the helicopter flying yes. by yeah that and grabbing onto it that was improvised i um <laughs> i also want to note briefly that i loved magnus um i thought that he was great as a bully because (laughs) he he was like he's not like that stupid he has a little bit of a back and forth with it like he's not just like a complete brute you can he can kind of like advocate for himself and like it isn't just like ever max is always making these snide remarks and he's like oh would you say like he's he's Mm. kind of outsmarting him in a lot of these interactions and Mm. at the end when max asks him to be in a play and there's the twist of like I've always wanted to be in one of your plays like that. It's such a perfect thing that recontextualizes their relationship throughout the entire movie that makes you feel like, oh, this wasn't just a stock bully character the whole time. Because I actually, it, I hate that scene. Only really? Because only oh, I, I like what he says. I like him saying, I've always wanted to be in your play place cut out there but then max saying i know or whatever i was like max hasn't learned anything he's still like a pretentious you're right i actually i didn't remember that right but i i completely agree you're right that's a good call but i i like but i agree with you enough where it it kind of evened out for me and that's how I feel about the whole movie. <laughs> I think that where I'm like, I like the rest of the movie so much that I actually had the exact same experience. I've seen this movie, I think more than you have. I, you, you're saying this is your second time watching Second time, yeah. It's like my fourth or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really like this movie. I've shown it to people I care about because I'm just like, this is really cool. And it's a good starter Wes Anderson's without being like, okay, Bottle Rocket or whatever, where you're stripping out almost everything that's Wes Anderson-y in comparison to how much it's going to be later. Um, and so I, I, I've shown this to a lot of people and I always, I think I always think that it's going to end exactly where you said, where he's like looking at the kite or whatever. And then there's like a whole nother 20 minutes of them getting the thing together and them trying a couple things. Uh, first, they try to get her with the, uh aquar rebuilding the aquarium then they try he tries to get her to show up to the play and everything and i don't think it takes away from the point i like having it all together i don't find it cheesy i actually find it really fun and an appropriate ending to the movie i i I just think that by then they've said everything they need to thematically where it's like and then they have to grow up and i think that they they uh they're done by then i don't see i would love to see someone else uh like really a wes anderson expert especially like really deep dig deep into these last 20 minutes because there's so much going on even though it basically amounts to and then they all lived happily ever after uh 
and I wonder what is going on there. Uh, I, I just, I like you said about that one scene, I like the rest of the movie too much to really complain. And I, and I asked you if it was funny to you because I don't know. I find that stuff just some of the funniest gags in the movie are you know, Luke Wilson showing up and being like, I was asked to wear a tie or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's really not funny. that I disagree or found that unenjoyable. It just, sure. it, it, kept it away from being my ideal version of this movie thematically and and totally and it kept me from being like uh this is a masterpiece and kept me closer to being like this is a a great film a capital g great film and uh i think that's all we have to say about rushmore yeah so let's get into my pick for this week Uh uh-oh second period's about to start better get our hall passes Oh, snap. We're going back to the 80s for... What's your favorite subject? Mine is lunch. Mine is breakfast. Uh What happens when five strangers end up together in Saturday detention? Badass posturing, gleeful misbehavior, and a potent dose of angst. With this exuberant, disarmingly candid film, writer-director John Hughes established himself as the bard of American youth. Oh, that is a title. Vividly and empathetically capturing how teens hang out act up and goof off the breakfast club brings together an assortment of adolescent archetypes the uptight popular girl molly ringwald the stoic jock emilio estevez the foul-mouthed rebel judd nelson the virginal bookworm anthony michael hall and the kooky recluse ali sheedy and watches them shed their personae and emerge into unlikely friendships with its highly quotable dialogue and star-making performances this exploration of the trials of adolescence become an era-defining pop culture phenomenon, one whose influence now spans generation. Dude, look, I know it's kind of basic. I remember when I first got into the... The the first time I got into the Criterion Collection was because of the Before Trilogy. I I loved the Before Trilogy, and I wanted all three of them together in one box set, and the only way you could do that is to go to Criterion. And I was like, oh, what is this? The Criterion Collection. Then I looked into, what is the Criterion Collection? What are some movies I might have heard of in here? And then I was like, oh, The Breakfast Club. There's one, or whatever. And slowly I've gotten more into being more of a cinephile since then. I know it's kind of basic, but I love The Breakfast Club. I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's genuinely one the best teen com the best teen comedy ever made. I'll I'll put, I'll throw that down probably. It's John Hughes' best work for sure. I think it is a masterpiece of teen age cinema, which is really hard to do. Uh, and we've noticed in recent years how we're kind of reclaiming like Clueless, your Mean Girls, you're uh, Legally Blonde. I know that's college, but like, you know, th- those sort of uh, schoolish type movies uh, that are made for like pop art audiences are being like reclaimed as like, you know, great works of fiction or whatever. Those are and girl I- sleepover movies. E- yeah. The boys, you know, we were watching The Edge of Tomorrow's and The Priests. <laughs> and I think that uh this is maybe the best one i think that this is uh the ultimate strive forward uh best movie you can get of this genre and i'm really glad it's in the collection i actually before we really dive into this sean i want to set up we've been doing a segment where by which i mean last week we did a segment where we talked about uh 
th- uh, three movies that we wanted to see in the collection. I was actually interested in this because I feel like having this movie in the collection is important because you should have a John Hughes in the collection. I feel like it's important enough to American cinema that you should have one by this director in the collection. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know if next week you would come with a list of two or three uh, uh, auteur directors who you think should be in the collection. I- I'll do the same. Shinya uh, Sukamoto, Alexandra Hodorowsky. Okay, well, I guess no tension. I can repeat next it next week. week, but those are the two. <laughs> okay, great. I'm going to be doing some Googling later and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. But the, uh, anyway, so Alejandro, yeah. I meant. I think I said Alexandro. I think you Who did too. I? I'm nothing. I just assumed anyway. that it was right. Um, so, Sean, what do you think? Do you have a relationship with The Breakfast Club? Do you think it's awesome? I have never seen this thing before, and I never had a specific instinct to see it. Just the whole John Hughes 80s nostalgia. I mean, it's not 80s nostalgia. It is 80s. 80s, But that I like I'm not nostalgic for that period at all. And I hadn't seen it when I was a kid. So it, it just didn't really seem like my type of thing. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to have a movie that's you know, for, for this, for this project, this thing we're doing, it's nice right. to have a movie that, you know, is like popular with mass audiences so that you can say, well, at least it'll be watchable, uh, which sounds mm-hmm. like damning with faint praise. And <laughs> some of the, listen, listen, here's the thing. I like this less than like a Tarkovsky movie, but this is easier to watch than, you know, stalker or whatever. But it goes down I, I, real easy yeah it goes down very easy and i don't want to dismiss it um it's it is very good at what it is at what it is which is encapsulating these archetypes having familiar but comfortable story arcs and storylines and presenting it in a really interesting way and i think the presentation of it i want to i think we should kind of go character by character here kind of briefly touch on them but the one thing that i want to say up front is i love the presentation of it as kind of a very limited environment very limited set of characters a a snapshot of a brief period in time and the way that like the the briefness of it and how kind of ephemeral it is and how it's this deeply personally affecting thing that ultimately won't have a tangible effect on, on these characters lives and the way that it's presented again, like the smallness and the intimacy and letting us understand the environment of this school and then subsequently the internal environment of these characters. Um, it's, it's an incredibly fucking smart setup. Um, and, and the, I mean, the essay thing is like a little bit goofy because you know exactly how it's going to play out. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I mean, the opening narration kind of does that. Sure. The op- it's it's like kind of effective in a certain way for like foreshadowing, but maybe it gives away a little bit too much. But, you know, it's it's for mass audiences. It, it is what it is. Um, I also think that it... Appeal. I think that it needs to tell you a little bit about the environment that these, I I love that it's an abandoned school. Like you don't ever see them in school. And I think that it's important to establish the roles that they are going to subvert through. I mean, like Anthony Michael Hall plays the brain, right? He's the one who's doing the like narrating and everything. And I, I, I love that. He's just, his name's Brian, which is brain, you know, right. 
a two letters mixed around. There's your mass audience appeal there. Right. Uh, that's, that's a million domestic right there. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, um, I, I think that Brian is, is great because he's the, he starts as being like this very, I love the very speci- the specifics of, of, of him. Like he says, fellas, like his shoes. What I love the shot of all their shoes because you see his shoes and you're like, Oh, those aren't like, like it would be so easy to make this guy like a square who like wears like uh dress shoes to sh- to school or whatever but no he wears like really crappy sneakers from like a payless or whatever mm-hmm. he wears not not great sh- he wears shoes that are like off color don't match his outfit and kind of suck i i think that it's perfect but you then have to see past that and see like he's like a person who's dealing with his own stuff you kind of expect like the suicidal one the person who's like oh i tried to kill myself or thought about killing myself to be yeah, the allison. basket case or yeah. right allison or you know even whatever the criminal like he'd be like oh whatever or they'd even put like i mean uh, especially after all the athlete guy uh, you know emilio estevez's character is talking about andrew I, I act like i i know all these characters names but uh mm-hmm. you know when andrew talks about it he's like pressure pressure like gotta be the best or whatever you're like okay well that could easily crack we've seen that a thousand times you actually i think expect brian to be the least likely to want to kill himself and to see him like unfulfilled and perfectly willing to throw away his life over a you know wood uh woodworking project is is amazing yeah i have to say that his motivation was still like a little bit weak for me. I guess, Mm. I guess I understand it, but it still felt like the rest of it was so grounded that that just felt very exaggerated. Like, is this kid like so insane about this, that getting, ending up with a B in a class. And I, I understand it like, Oh, you know, I've never failed in my life, but to me it's, it, it was a little bit exaggerated in my mind um but i I actually agree except that i think i what i like what it kind of sells me on it is he's like even if i even if i ace the rest of the semester it's still gonna be a b like he's like i can't he failed like he didn't he didn't get a b to be clear he failed he he's gonna get a b overall and his and you we're also given the most intimate portrayal of his parents of all of them and you see him like nagging at him and everything and I think that rules. I, I don't know. Yeah, but I do. I do see your point, though. It is a little, it's a little silly, especially because they're undercutting it. I, but I, I, you know, I think that undercutting it with the flare gun joke helps with that, where it's like, you know, he didn't think yeah, it through no, all the way. Cool. I agree. Yeah, that's <laughs> that does help um, help the tone of it. I also just one more little thing about Brian. What I kind of appreciate about him and kind of playing it against type in a certain sense is that he's not really that shy. He's kind of sociable, but still awkward. Like you would expect the shy kid to be like just sitting in the corner and writing his essay, but people will just be talking and he'll be chiming in like, well, my cousin did this, this, like he's, <laughs> you know, he's, my he's cousin awkward. is such, I love everything he says, the way he talks. I know these people. I am these people sometimes. He's like, fellas, let's settle down. I'm like, he's emulating the way that like, quote, adults talk, right? Like he's, he's trying to say, he's, he's talking probably the way that his parents talk and probably the way that all his authorities talk. And he thinks that that makes him 
powerful or it makes him cool or it makes means that he's speaking with authority and he doesn't at all because he's like this you know he's he's i mean he's one of the tallest kids but he's like this shrimpy little kid you know yeah um but speaking of not a little shrimpy andrew is in contrast kind of he has this like level of composure i think about him Mm -hmm. um that it's i mean it's interesting because i mean it it gets kind of undercut by bender's harassment but he has this this sense of pride i think that comes across very easily where he through just being like kind of reticent and not talking that much or just trying to be sort of like you know cool at all times in addition to him jumping down bender's throat when he gets appropriately aggravated all of that like very well translates to what we eventually learn about him which is this desperation to never have this weakness um which is imparted by his dad and what helps that work really really well for me is like we see his dad in the car in the beginning and he's like the archetypal guy who's like a jock bully asshole in high school and college and then just turns out to be just like some dipshit schlub like he's not like an athletic or hot guy he's just he looks kind of like a an average suburban midwestern dad yeah and yeah it it it, you know throws into this stark like sad relief that yeah um this kid is being held hostage by like this fucking loser who wants to use like live his life through him and yeah like his that that scene which is like this incredible perfect panning shot of him telling the story about how we just harassed this kid because and just for for no reason it's just this stupid thing that he got hung up on he just thought well, I don't want my dad to think I'm a loser, so I'm just going to beat up on this kid that I have nothing against. And that's right. just incredibly, incredibly sad. I And I think that it, there's some truth to this, where it's like, you sometimes you act out because of your parents, not in rebellion to them, you know? Because you want to have lived the life that they say they want to live too, because their goals become your goals. And it's not that you're acting out I, I mean, there's that, that moment at the beginning where his, his dad says, you know, I had fun when I was your age too, but you got caught, mister, so but don't mm-hmm. don't have this again. They don't want a delinquent quick case at whatever, Harvard, but for sports. Um, and so I, I, I understand the place he's coming from where it's like you want to be – do you want to have those little – stupid moments you want to have been silly the same way that like those memories come around and i i think that there's something true there um he is probably my favorite because he also feels no Mm -hmm. i mean whatever he's not my favorite whatever we'll get to the it's pretty obvious who everyone's favorite is but uh he he's so he's kind of uh he's the one probably i see the most of me in because he's just this guy who's like i feel like uh he he has like a moral obligation to be better like brian doesn't want things to happen where he's like i don't want i don't want to be he's like i don't want to get in trouble or whatever because i don't want to because i want to behave just so that i can keep on going with the things that i'm doing whereas andrew genuinely is like oh i 
don't want the girl to get hurt. I don't want you guys to smoke dope, all this stuff, because there's this weird sense of morality that he has. And I mm-hmm. I think that's interesting, especially when you're like a kid and it's like you you don't know what your morality is. You know, I think that that comes out in bits. Speaking of, I mean, the characters, though, that's everyone's favorite. We got to talk about it's, the basket. That's game. the issue with watching this movie now. If you get a room full of people our age together... You're not going to be able to hear the damn movie because every time Allison (laughs) does something fucking insane, like, you know, burning her eyebrows off with matches or fucking playing Magic the Gathering or whatever freaky shit (laughs) she does. Whoa, wait, that sounded specific and like that's not from the movie. And everyone's going to be pointing at the screen and going, me, she's so me, queen, slay. Everyone will be saying that she's slay, that she's iconic. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is you can't stop them because they're right. The thing is, I always I, I always talk to uh, my mother loves Allison, one of her favorites, because she always remembers the sandwich she makes. And she was like, yeah, I would do stuff like that. Apparently, my mother used to dip uh, cookies in uh, orange juice because she was like, I don't know. These are the things I have. And one day we were out of milk and I decided that I dipped it in orange juice from now on or whatever. And I think that's just like, it's such a kid thing of like, I don't know if I don't really care about what other people think of me or I want people to think that I don't care about what they think of me or I have wanted them to think that for long enough that I actually don't care about what people think of me and I've developed weird habits, then little things like this start to come up, you know, uh, wrapping a bit of twine around your finger until it turns purple. Like these are so... These are things that still happen around now. I like Allison, I think, is a controversial character now because there's this moment at the end that kind of uh, where she like gets dolled up. And then, uh, you know, Emilio Estevez gets to look at her and be like, whoa, you're so pretty or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he gets to take the glasses off. Right. And it, well, I like that he doesn't. It's uh, the princess. It's uh, Molly Ringwald who gets to take the b- b- glasses off. Claire, I like that the moment is actually her. The, the more important moment is that she opened up to other people. And I think that kind of gets like, you know, we'll talk about the ending in a, in a bit. But I think that kind of gets downplayed. I think that her arc is really like realizing, hey, I don't I met I met I know these people. I know people who carry around purses that are a little too full or uh stuff things in their bra all the time for safekeeping or steal for just fun or whatever to try to like grab attention but as soon as they're they have attention pushed on them it's like they you know hiss and run away from the light and uh yeah i think she she is one of the most if not the most resonant one of the most resonant characters in the whole group and also what i what kind of really reinforce the strength of this presentation for me which is the mm-hmm. yeah like everything being captured in this in this very specific moment in time and us not getting a ton of answers outside of what these characters reveal about themselves and never seeing from an objective point of view you know exactly how these situations went and kind of having to take their word for it at like she multiple times like lies openly you know notably to to get claire to talk about sexuality but she also says that she's a compulsive liar, which, you know, if she's lying about, would also, like, 
it's kind of a catch-22 there. Um, right. So, I, uh, I don't um, know. I still, to this day, like, every time she says that, I think about whether or not she's lying. And if she is lying, whether that makes her telling the truth. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. It, it kind of throws into doubt a lot of the things that she's saying, um, mm. which, which is pretty interesting because it makes you wonder, like, things like oh she just came in because she has nothing better to do like is she even kind of telling the truth about that like that's it's it's part of what makes her really interesting and just how reticent of course she is in the first half she's she's like the exception to the rule with the rest of them or Mm -hmm. you know maybe she isn't you you never really know and that ambiguity is part of what makes her fun I agree, and I think that it's also awesome just because uh, you can accept some of the facts about her or none of the facts about her, but or or you have to accept some of the facts about her too because I think that the point is that she opens up a little bit. You don't know the specifics about what's going on in her home life. She just says her parents ignore her or whatever, but you don't know much outside of like the car dropping her off with like the parent who just like says get out she gets out and then you know the car drives away or whatever like i i think that there is some truth there even though she could be lying about almost every specific now i think we come to you mentioned claire i think claire is interesting molly ringwald is often john hughes's muse uh you know he talks about her in that way what do you think about claire she i think this is maybe my favorite of all of these performances. I think Whoa. Molly Ringwald brings the most to it. Um, Holy cow. That is, I did not see that coming at all. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. Do you, how much do you even disagree though? I think it is. I don't, I don't know. These are my friends. I don't want to compare which performances. That's better. true. I apologize. <laughs> I don't want you to, to, to make you pick sides. I, I actually, I, I don't know. Uh, Judd Nelson as as Bender is probably sure, the best yeah. performance in my opinion, but he also has just the most to do when he's the adult or whatever. No, yeah. I, I just didn't expect thing. you to be like Molly Ringwald. Bam. Well, because she's just incredibly sympathetic and she imparts like from from every single point. I think there's this constant sense that of like sadness with her and I think when she gets called out, you know, near the the kind of climax at the end where everybody's kind of bearing everything, um, like the way that she gets called out and the way that she sells the vulnerability and just kind of the terror, I think, at, at being exposed and being vulnerable. Like when Bender is calling her out for her, her earrings and everything, like that moment. And also just her kind of taking it upon herself to be the one to say like, no, I think this is it for us. I, I don't think we are going to be friends after this. Like the sense Mm -hmm. of like duty and tragedy that she brings to it. Like I have to be like, I have to be the one to, to do this because the rest of you aren't going to be honest about it. That, and that being able to sell that as her being sympathetic, um, and it being this source of deep and intelligent, and emotionally intelligent yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's socially intelligent. It's an easy way to see her as kind of the villain in that scene. And like, no, fuck you. Why would you say that? Of course they're going to be friends, but right. I, I don't know, whatever the movie actually seems to think about how that will turn out. 
I, I think that you're you're very much meant to understand my um Claire's perspective in that moment and uh maybe mm, but Emilio Estevez is so good and that's he has the best wow scene. I, to, to two people I thought you would least likely to no. to be like yeah the the two squares those are my favorite <laughs> like no, but that's there's the two that I think that are are, are have give the best performances or whatever the sense of I, sadness I don't disagree they bring is so much but... more relatable to me sure uh yeah that's that's my two cents i agree i think that my i just i'm just gonna say ditto to everything you said so that we can move on but Mm. have you seen other john hughes no not not none of them ferris bueller 16 candles uh i have seen ferris bueller but no no other molly ringwald no i am so fascinated sean i think you would hate this movie if you had seen all the other john hughes movies because you'd I'm this is I'm just really glad that this is the first time you've seen this. I did not expect that because I think that you're seeing it with these fresh eyes that expose something because of the context of the collection as opposed to the context of these other 80s comedies that John Hughes directed. And mm-hmm. Molly Ringwald I think is part of that where it's like she is a revelation. I think she is really amazing in this movie. I think she's pretty good in I think she's pretty good in all of them. I think 16 Candles she's she's a little sidelined but uh in general she's you know she's john hughes muse for a reason and i think she rules in this movie uh but people kind of underrate her because you know she's the girl in those 80s movies mm-hmm. and now we come to the the, the big guy the it's criminal crazy bender. that his name is bender like from futurama it's fucking <laughs> crazy that anybody can watch this movie and get over that he well i think that that's because the futurama guys the, the the simpsons guys they were influenced by this movie he says eat my shorts like yeah. bart simpson like that's that is a bart simpson like catchphrase but also it's a bender catchphrase mm-hmm. i think that it, i think that it all comes from from this movie honestly i really noticed this time around how much he's like our modern equivalent isn't of him isn't like a high school bully, which is what I kind of thought that, or even like a hippie dippy kind of like, Oh, he gets high behind the school and kind of like, you know, blows out, man, doesn't really care or whatever. Instead, our modern equivalent is like, he's a theater kid. He is a class clown. He thinks that he's like the funniest person in class and he, you know, stands up to authority, but it's like funny. I, I actually think he contains multitudes. He's the, he's the most, uh, He's the he's the least stereotypical of all of them. And so you you know, you get a lot of extra screen time with him just like everyone else, where you, you were able to dig deeper into him. But I think that he's the most fully obviously right off the bat uh complex character. And uh he, he has some places to go, but he's uh pretty obviously like what you see is what you get you can kind of guess that he has a bad home life you can kind of guess that he's not paid attention to you can kind of guess that he's abused like all this stuff and uh what he actually the the complexity that actually reveals itself is just he can relate to these other people he can actually be a little bit vulnerable and bring and bring out the best in them even by having them like uh rebel against authority yeah, I. It's interesting that you say that you feel like he's kind of the least, least stereotypical of them because, hmm. to me, what sort of undercut my appreciation was that a lot of this character's arc arc felt like a given. You know, like 
the loud blustering guy who's you know doing all this and saying all this shit of course he has a tragic backstory and like a bad home life and like all this this and this you know it a lot of what ended up happening with bender was very predictable in a way that i didn't necessarily predict the rest of the characters kind of if you have these archetypes and you say well we're going to subvert them we're going to play against type that in its own way is kind of a cliche and i Mm -hmm. think that the bully who has some moral complexity is um is kind of the most it's the most cliched of those of that genre of cliches you know so yeah but he doesn't he doesn't become a better person he doesn't become doesn't doesn't he he doesn't have any morals he doesn't gain any morals by this instead he is able to simply like what we're able to dig into with like whatever brian right it's he like presents as a nerd or whatever and you're like oh he actually is mentally uh he he has more going on in his struggles than you thought that he did and he has a lot more um uh he has a lot lot more mentally going on he has conflicts with his parents he has conflicts with himself he hates himself in a certain way and you don't really expect that from like a guy who you know could basically talk like this you know Mm -hmm. and uh that's and that is subverting that not by subverting and not by saying he's not actually like a brain or a nerd or whatever, but rather by saying like the, there is a lot more going on to him. I think that what I, when I say that Bender is uh, the least stereotypical, it's like that baseline I think is a little fudgy. He's a criminal he is, is the thing that they say, but like, that's not as stereotypical as like a jock slash athlete, right? Or the, the party girl, the princess, right? Like that is not, as obviously like this baseline that has to be subverted instead it's like yeah no he is a kid who acts up in class sometimes because his uh parents you know don't like him or whatever and he doesn't like flip his morals he doesn't become like a a, he's the most complex because i don't think he fits into a category as neatly as everyone else Hmm. that's all i mean he he very much presents as a complex character as soon as he walks in the room you're like oh i get this guy's deal but not because i've seen this in movies because that is a i i I can instantly track like all the lines of things that created this person sure yeah no i i would I, i would basically agree with that him being the focal point of the of the dramatic arc of it it makes enough sense it um it works but what I will say, my main issue here is the way that this thing ends up. And a lot of it is focused on the romantic relationships that end up developing. Like, I just do not yeah. buy Allison and Andrew at all. And, I mean, I frankly, I don't even know what else to say other than that. Like, that was not a relationship that I think is was very well-founded. Um, Bender and, and Claire gets a little bit more focus but it just feels like a lame kind of way to end it you know I, I don't think that like a romantic thing makes that much sense for any of these characters for, sure. for a few reasons one is on some level it kind of cheapens it because to me what's lovely about this is people when nothing is at stake and when they have nothing to gain still ending up relating to each other and sharing a moment of human connection 
They don't, mm-hmm. I, I, the version of this movie that I want to exist, like Rushmore, is one where they don't end up getting anything from each other. There aren't these romantic bonds that are forged. And on some level, it's implied that they don't really continue their relationship outside of this because mm-hmm. that's not what's at stake. They're not forging a lifelong right. friendship. Which they're, I read it they're as. They're growing that... up, they're, they're growing up and they're learning to become adults in the sense that you can relate to somebody and you can share a special moment and a special connection with somebody just fundamentally as humans. And that kindness, that understanding is, is the lesson that they should ultimately learn. And I think that the way it wraps up just kind of cheapens that. I can't, I can't argue with you about Allison and uh, Emilio Estevez's Andrew. I, I, I agree with you completely on that. I don't think that there's much there except that she's like, revealing herself i love the moment where molly ringwald is doing her makeup and she's like why are you so nice to me and molly ringwald's like oh because you're letting me or whatever like that's the point it's not the point isn't that she comes out and like you know she's beautiful or whatever and i think though that the romantic relationships kind of distract they're an added bonus to this thing where it's like this is almost the popular thing that they have to do where it's like i don't know it's a teen movie they're gonna like kiss each other at the end or whatever i think though that the bender and molly ringwald uh, claire relationship is actually i think that they're trying to say something there i do think that that is a relationship where they do get something out of it they're ending up together not because they're like in love or whatever they're hormonal they're teenagers but rather because like what Bender says he's like you know wouldn't it be great if you could get back at your your parents after this it's like they're not changed or whatever they're just they're going to try something and they're going to try something a little different they're going to try to be together or whatever I think the implication being like it's not going to work out. Just like Molly Ringwald said there, you know, when they go back to school on Monday, none of these characters are really going to be able to figure anything out. They're all going to like break up and never talk to one another again because they exist in different social circles other than maybe Allison just opening up and actually having friends of some kind at some point. Right. But I think that that whole, that ending, that iconic ending where he puts his fist up in the air is a a recognition of whatever happens now whether they these people are together or not they connected and there is something beautiful and and frankly like exhilarating when that happens where you are just like there we yeah we were able to relate to one another and share a little bit of our soul with each other and i don't know why but that was pretty cool and you know also he fist bumps because he thinks he's going to get laid or whatever but they that that darkening that fading thing at the end where it, it he they have the freeze frame he has his fists in the air and then it goes uh, the frame gets a little bit darker and it's just saying you know it's fading out saying like you know uh it's not gonna last the sun is set on on the on the day the breakfast club is ended and uh who knows what happens from now on but i I, and so i think that the romantic pairings although a little distracting i think that they're i don't know they're fine they're like boring I also just think Allison looks prettier when she before she transforms. Oh, absolutely! I think that's, I think that's a classic uh, John Hughes uh, complaint. But yeah. Um. All right. I think with that, you want to move on. Let's move on to uh, your pick this week, yes. Sean. Sort of the um, the anti Breakfast Club. In many ways, yeah. 
Perky overachieving high schooler Tracy Flick gets on the nerves of social studies teacher Jim McAllister to begin with, but after she launches her campaign for student body president and his personal life starts to fall apart, things spiral out of control. In Alexander Payne's satirical election, the teacher becomes unhealthily obsessed with cutting his student down to size, covertly backing a spoiler candidate to stop her from steamrolling to victory and putting in motion a series of dirty tricks and reckless promises with uncanny real-world political parallels. Adapting a then published novel by Tom Perota, Payne grounds the absurdity of the central dynamic in the recognizable. The setting is his hometown of Omaha, Nebraska. The accomplished cast is rounded out with non-professionals and distills his closely observed take on deeply flawed humanity to its bitter but stealthily sympathetic essence. This is one of my favorite movies and a rewatch only reinforced that in my mind. This thing is, I mean, just, just starting with the way that it looks and the way that it's presented is mm-hmm. I love that. I love Payne's style here and the way that he, he frames everything. Like there's this sense that every single aspect of it is, is working together for the team, like the narration, which gives us an incredible sense of momentum and propulsion and makes it so it's never boring. You're flashing between all these different characters, all these different perspectives that unfold and, and complement one another. Obviously they're unreliable and has Mm -hmm. this, you know, a lot of dramatic and and dissonant irony with what is being displayed on screen or like when they use cute little editing things like stopping on, um, on the worst moments uh, for Reese Witherspoon's face to like look as as weird and fucked up as possible, when... which is especially awesome because Reese Witherspoon's like a movie star now, and the you know she's uh, like a simple person at this point. Like she's a she's an actress here by now, but like she's not the name brand person that we think of now, and so making her look this silly early on in her career is awesome. Right? Yeah, and that it, it works really well for that. Like, I mean, she she is so fucking good in this movie. Just as an aside, like. Roderick is very good. He's appropriately cast, but Witherspoon is absolutely just slam dunk perfect. She understands this fucking character. I she thought is... you said Roderick for a second, and I was yes. <laughs> trying to remember Roderick which Moore. tired of a whoopee character um, was in here. But she, she just has this incredible hold on what makes this character obnoxious, while mm-hmm. also having like the the pristine energy and keeping everything like the sunniness that's still kind of veiled and just also the, the moments where she's very sad and downtrodden. Like you're not, I don't know how much you're supposed to feel bad for kind of a little bit, but anyway, Witherspoon is, is phenomenal. I think she's the real star of the show here. Um, But like the, and the way that like the, the bouncy score, like keeps momentum with everything, the like little editing things that, don't that only appear like once or twice like the little um the little interstitial things that look like um like a brady bunch or or 70s family comedy intro where it's like with with linda or putting the faces on top of his wife Mm -hmm. uh, as he's having sex with her which is like what one Funny of the and most gross. insane. That's <laughs> that realistically is the best part of Witherspoon's performance. I think. <laughs> <Or> <laughs> Fuck me and Mr. M. Fuck it, me. 
it is pretty good. I, I actually think my favorite uh, Witherspoon moment is when she's like, oh, I what's his name? Dave, right? She has sex with Dave. It's like, and she's like, oh, I, you think that because I don't have a father or whatever, that it's because right, I have father yeah. issues that I was with him. Oh, it's not because of that. It's just that he's so strong and makes me feel so secure or safe or whatever. That lack of awareness. I love that the movie is constantly making fun of its main characters and all his main characters think that they're the main character of the movie. Like all, all four of these characters, the three uh, electees and uh and matthew Broderick are all uh they all think that this is their movie and really it's none of their movies we're all laughing at all of them and they all have their own problems except for paul paul's cool paul's, paul's awesome, awesome. I, you're, yeah, so, I, you're laughing with paul i think that really comes out with tracy especially because tracy's all like i'm driven and i'm you know whatever but we we're also pausing on her the worst moments of her you know, uh, of her face. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and the silliness that is inherent there. Um, and, and we're constantly undercutting her there. I also think that it's with Mr. McAllister, Matthew Broderick's character. I think that they're, they're interesting as, as opposed figures, uh, Tracy sort of representing like this next, whatever, uh, there's this mentality that Tracy has of being like, uh, I'm going to win. I'm going to do this thing. She has this amazing amount of ambition, but she's also being projected upon by every adult around her, including Mr. McAllister, who is saying that like, Oh, she's like a horrible villainess and she's ruining his life or whatever. And when actually she is just very passively doing the thing that she's always been doing, which is being like a nerd and being someone who wants to, uh, you know, be student class president and everything. And, uh, he just projects more sinister nature upon her uh while tracy herself is just uh you know also you know like she has the 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 relationship with dave where dave is saying like oh she's perfect she wants to read my novel and he's projecting all this thing of like we're in love and tracy's like i don't know he was tracy also didn't like love him she was just like i don't know he was nice sex he was teacher who cares right i think that that is interesting i think tracy as a figure is interesting to think about within the context of american politics because of these uh characters who tend to be brought up in uh as people pleasers as people who want to do whatever other people want i don't think that's inherently villainous i think McAllister. the whole point is that McAllister is actually the real villain because he ends up uh you know uh actually taking villainous actions whereas tracy's worst worst crime is like uh tearing down a couple posters and like lying about it uh and instead McAllister is the one who projects like oh you slept with my best friend when she did but like you know she's a teenager <laughs> like right. come on you're well, not gonna hold that against here's, her here's where we really diverge here is mm-hmm. i i agree that tracy is ultimately kind of the the culmination of multiple adults projections and ambitions for her we have her mom who is this this person who like tracy like holds up as like an overachiever but seems very much like she's kind of someone who postures at that but maybe can't exactly walk the walk because i mean like you know it being a paralegal hell that's that's a perfectly respectable line of work but the way tracy talks about it and plays it up makes it feel very much like her mom she has won many cases Right. Well, she works at a law firm who has won many cases. Like she's the 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 third, fourth rung down in a successful law firm. Um, <laughs> right. And Tracy has this, uh, and you can uh, like when Tracy's talking about her mom, like writing letters to successful women, like yeah, like Nancy don't like, and, and the two that she lists are like, yeah, I, I guess, like they're not. The, 
I mean, it's uh, the nineties. Yeah, like, sure. I mean, sure. yeah, but like it, if it was Hillary, it would be a little bit on the nose, but, um, <laughs> but like the, that kind of idea that her mom has these sort of unfulfilled ambitions, um, mm. but she's managed to create like this, this perfect ball of what, whatever that is. You, you can't do that. Yeah. What? Whatever uh, that, what you just said, you, you just, it's going to, I can't, I couldn't understand what you're saying. Okay. She's just accidentally, despite not being, you know, the the highest achiever in the world she's managed to through luck and circumstance create this this destined child which has the perfect intersection of luck competency and ambition to like be fated to conquer everything like she mm-hmm. talks in the beginning with mr McAllister about well no she she says i don't know why mr McAllister like tried mr McAllister tried to fight against fate like she frames mm. it in this way of it is a foregone conclusion that I will I will be ascendant. Like right. I will like I am going to to rule over everything. I'm go- I you know, whatever I see, I will conquer. Like I am inevitable. Mm. And she's kind of And then Mr. Right. McAllister says, I am Iron Man, and you know, he snaps yeah. and then like she's yeah, Tracy Flake like evaporates into dust, I have it in know? my notes that much like Thanos, Tracy Flake is inevitable. Right, but, right. And and I think that 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 gives me a sense that I have a different reading from this movie than you. And I think that's part of why I love this thing is there's two somewhat contradictory, but come, but I think in some way also complementary um, versions of this, which is Mr. McAllister is unambiguously the villain. And in many ways, Tracy is a victim, but I think that this movie, it, it poses an interesting and darker and more complex question, which is like Tracy, she's not the villain of the movie, mm-hmm. but I think in some way she's like the ultimate villain of the world because she's a, a young woman who gets like raped by, by an older man. Like that's unambiguously awful. Like she's been exploited. Right. She's been like that. It's part of it is that McAllister and, you know dave obviously like they're pieces of shit they're awful awful men who Uh are not they don't treat the people around them correctly they don't treat tracy correctly like they are not the heroes whatsoever but i think that there's this sense that McAllister, obviously he has many things that are very awful about him and many traits that aren't relatable and shouldn't be relatable to anybody but he is relatable in some certain ways, which is that I think as the audience were meant to infer that there is something deeply wrong and kind of evil about the person that Tracy is and the kind of people that Tracy ends up representing who are just like, these are the, the pharmaceutical CEOs and corrupt politicians of the world who are just right. the Harry hen- limes. Yeah. Yeah. They're just about. all personal advancement and cold blooded ambition. Like, yeah, she, Tracy Flick is the type of person to look from the the top of a Ferris wheel and say, look, Mr. M, you just have to do a a calculus in your mind. How many of those dots need to disappear in order for me to win the election? And like, that's, that was great. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, it's sort of contrasted with, um, with Paul and Tammy in a sense where they're both kind of, what's interesting about them is I, I think that they're both meant to be very sympathetic in their way. But they're both also like the the scions of this rich, you know, construction company. And on some mm-hmm. level, when Tracy talks about like there are people who want to like 
degrade women and keep them from being successful. And, you know, you have these rich kids who are just waltzing in and want something handed to them on a silver platter. It's like, the thing is like, she is right about those things. She is correct in so many of the things that she does and says, and yeah, she doesn't really do that many explicitly bad things, but I, and I mean, a lot of that is having to do with like the indictment of the American political system. Like you can just, however, have however many examples of the Pauls of the world who are just sort of blandly charismatic, rich kids who just mm-hmm. step into the halls of power as placeholders. But and and then you know, contrasted with the Tracys, who maybe have things that are correct and are they're competent, they're good administrators, but ultimately they're completely cold blooded. And there's yeah. this. Like the, the the ending when, you know, Jim throws the coffee cup at her car. It's like, yeah, Jim, you're a piece of shit. You're the dregs of the of humanity. But like mm-hmm. also you get it. And that's that's what <laughs> sure. works so well about this movie for me. It's like I I get why I, I have this like deep seething hatred for everybody in this movie and also this incredible like sense of fear i think for for becoming also any one of them and yeah it just right. it it works except paul it hits Paul's cool. all there i could be paul i would love uh, to be right. paul would it, not mind ending paul, up as him i like that paul's uh biggest evil though is that like he's just completely passive and un completely non-knowledgeable about how privileged he is as a person you know yeah i, I guess and, that's which is a you know what we really really hate in american culture probably the most right now but also you know he's kind of charismatic we kind of like it (laughs) yeah it's it's interesting because it kind of flips around who you would assume you feel sympathetic for like tracy flick is like a plucky go-getter who wants to do her best and work hard and but she's portrayed as this sort of eldritch like unknowable evil creature force gumpy yeah a little bit you know in a sense yeah like a fantastical apparition in our world of something sort of supernatural um versus paul who like he's despite everything he's very likable and um i I think you could even say that there's maybe a deeper irony there where this movie is sort of making fun of those assumptions like well we like you know the the privileged dipshit and we're you know we dislike the the person who's like yeah competent and and ambitious and I mean, I don't think that's exactly my reading, but but well, I think the thing we like the most, but apparently the thing we like the most is uh, what? What's her name? What am I missing? What's the other girl's name? Tammy. Tammy is Tammy's take, which is just like screw the system, and everyone goes yay, and it's like completely non-constructive. It is completely destructive. We like raw rebellion, especially as teenagers or whatever, and uh, that's what appeals to us the most is uh, chaos. I, I think I do. I do really like Tammy. I basically, I would come down on the on the side of Tammy ultimately. I know like, you I know would. that it's not. Constru- I know, I know that would. it's not constructive. But ultimately, like, what's it? In order to become constructive, you need to become destructive because you need to have something to build, rebuild from the ground up. And I, I think that Don't. there's a a sadness <laughs> that the that like Tammy who has a vision that can ultimately become something productive and can at the very least is animating and harnessing of the energies and reflects the will of the populace. Like, but it, it ultimately falls through because fate conforms to get her out of the way. And ultimately destiny will no matter what make it so that, uh, 
that Tracy Flick ends up on top. And with that, let's uh, let's rank these four movies. Sean, I all of my rankings went really high. I was uh, surprised how high they went, and I grouped two of them together. Look, I, I really love it, but number 64 is Election. I'm going to get this movie on Blu-ray, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, I, I just could not see it going too high. It's right above Passion and Joan of Arc from last week and right below number 63, The Third Man, which I put I put these two right next to each other. I flip flopped them. I thought about them. I like The Third Man a lot as just for the, its thriller elements and its beautiful shot compositions. Uh, I will be rewatching both of these movies for a while. Third Man's right below Insomnia. Now we get really high up on my list. We got Rushmore. Like we're doing with this podcast, Rushing More. Right above Night of the Living Dead and right below Funny Games, which is also what we're doing with this podcast. I think that uh, Rushmore is a really powerful bit, and I'm really excited to continue our... I don't know what I'm saying here. Uh, I'm really excited to keep watching more Wes Anderson movies, but this one's still one of the good ones. One of the really great ones. And then The Breakfast Club. I have all the way up there at number 17 right mm. above house which i know is like you know devastating to you and right below all that heaven allows which i know is like a it's a really hot spot right there i know i've been putting a lot of stuff there so i'm gonna have to clear some spot or whatever i love the breakfast club i wish i i was thinking about rating it even higher it was a toss-up between this one and all that heaven allows i knew it couldn't get past irma vep and ultimately i came down here at 17 uh i love this movie more than most of the movies on this list but you know it's number 17 so for me uh we're gonna start uh, you could consider it lowish uh rushmore is at 90 for me whoa it seems a little bit low i know but you know it's it is what it is fuck you um actually never mind it's at 92 i forget i forget sometimes it's right above for all mankind and right below true stories i thought those were kind of they work well next to each other, you know? Sure. I think that makes enough sense. That does. Breakfast Club is at 84. Maybe that could, one could have gone a little bit higher. It's just above Fear and Loathing and just below the lure for me. I've been treating the lure pretty unfairly. I've been, you know, maybe messing up my rankings a little bit with that one. So I figured I'd throw the Breakfast Club under it. As Your list is all out of whack, my dude. Nah, I wouldn't say so. The third man, though, we're jacking right up to number 27. It's, like I said, this is a new favorite of mine. It's above Taste of Cherry, just below Irma Vep. It is just on the cusp of just absolutely popping off and going crazy. Mm. Speaking of, we've got a new entry in the top 10. Election is at 9 for me. It's bumping Do the Right Thing to 11 just above Andre Rublev and just below Stalker. So a nice little Tarkovsky sandwich we're making there. <laughs> um, and a very, very different film in the middle of them. But um, I I think that's that's where it'll go. That's where it'll stay. I didn't think I would be ranking Election higher than you would be ranking Breakfast Club. But I I don't regret it for a second. I fucking love this thing. It's all that personal thing where you're like, very much, these are your favorites. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, Breakfast Club's like, one in the top five favorite movies on this list but also i can't deny that like john hughes is not the filmmaker of like you know powell and pressburger or mike nichols or something and yeah, with that and well i yeah. just as, as a little postscript there to i think like alexander payne i need to watch a few Bang. more of his films but 
he might be up there. I think he might be one of my just absolute favorite directors. And I, I'm glad that Election on a Rewatch is not only one of my favorites, but I, I think it legitimately goes toe-to-toe with the heavy hitters. Well, I guess we'll have to see if that movie holds over and rewatch. Next week, we have a very interesting week because coming up, we have the Orphic Trilogy, which I am not really excited about. I'm going to be completely honest here. Uh, John Cocteau's uh, trilogy, Blood of a Poet, Orpheus, and the Test or Testament of Orpheus. Um, I'm not really into this very much, so we'll have to see if this is any... We'll have to see if they're any good. Have you seen anything about these movies, Sean? No, sir. All right. Well, because we're doing three movies, uh, and by doing so, we're doing four spine numbers because the trilogy itself is a spine number, we decided we're not going to do picks this week. We're going right into Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. May as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm really interested in this. I'm making my way through all Martin Scorsese's movies. This is a tad off for me uh, in my order, but I'm... Really excited to check it out, and uh, Willem Dafoe, Willem Dafoe. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Please join us next week to hear about those titles. We are so excited to uh, we're so excited to bring you more podcasting. Uh, ch- check out uh, our links in the description to our Twitter and our Instagram. Uh, this ed- episode was edited by Tyler Frazier, uh, and as always, Alexander Payne. That's fine. You can be the Malcolm X of this podcast. I'll be the Martin Luther King. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I dis. I feel like that characterization is unfair to all four people involved in that <laughs> yeah, for maybe. extremely different reasons. <laughs> let's actually let's not let's cut that out. I don't and, think we should. Okay. Well. Too bad. And with that, we're ending today's episode. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to wait a second. Hold on, cut what I just said out because I forgot we have to do our rankings.